The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Although today we're going to be focusing really on verses 21 through 32, I think it would be advantageous for us to read through the entire account of the crucifixion, beginning in verse 20 and ending in verse 39. So I'll give you a moment to to get there. Mark chapter 15, verse 20. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. Let's pray. God, we come to you today recognizing that this message of the cross is one that we should never leave. This message of the cross is for us, life-giving. And so, God, I pray that today, as we look into this, which is the heart of the gospel, that you would please help us, that you would please give us joy, that you would give us the appropriate level of ability to focus our attention on this truth. God, we can't learn from this, we can't grow from this, we can't be changed by this unless your Spirit is here with us, working in us. So, God, I pray that far beyond the words that I will speak, but In your power, you would change us. God, I pray that, just as was prayed earlier, that you would reveal yourself to us clearly, 
and that we might see you for who you are. God, I ask that every person in this room would be changed by God's grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We live in a society that is increasingly fascinated with and preoccupied with worthless things. Journalism, for example, died a long time ago and has been replaced by clickbait articles and things like that that show up on your social media feeds. These seven actors wear wigs. Number four will shock you. Woman shaves her cat and what happens next will have you in tears. Don't ever click on those things. They're worthless. Even historically reputable news outlets have devolved into echo chambers of their own opinions and have created an art form out of saying almost nothing meaningful with as many words as possible. And as members of this society, we have become, I think, unaccustomed to reading carefully. I think in large part, this is because we're not used to finding anything of value on the page or on the screen. So we've learned to be masters at skimming. But the Bible, and in particular as we're looking at it today, the book of Mark, is far from a clickbait article. This is God's eternal, abiding, perfect word, and everything in Mark's gospel has been racing towards this moment. It has been racing to get us to the cross. So we're now we're going to slow down a little bit, I think appropriately so, so that we can savor and so that we can soak in the glories of Calvary. This is the pivotal moment in world history. This is it. This is the hinge upon which all of the ages turn. It is the central event in the Bible and quite literally the central event in the entire history of the universe. This event, this gospel message is the brightest burst of the character of God that flashes from him into our world and into our eyes. All of the divine attributes are on display at the cross in one singular act of love. Everything that had ever happened in all of history up to this moment was flowing like a river to it. And everything that has ever happened since is like a delta that flows out of it. Your entire life, whether or not you recognize this, is defined by the cross. So let's examine carefully today the beginning of what happened here at the cross, starting in verses 21 through 32. We're going to consider three things today. Jesus rode to the cross, Jesus reviled on the cross, and Jesus remained on the cross. First, let's consider Jesus rode to the cross. The Romans had perfected the art of crucifixion. The entire process was perfected and designed for maximum shame and physical torture. It was also a warning shot across the bow of any would-be criminals to remind them, this is the consequence, this is what happens if you make yourself an enemy of Rome. One way to accomplish these goals of shame and torture and terror was to parade the captive through the city as he carried his own manner of execution on his back. It's likely that the cross where Jesus died was a permanent fixture on Golgotha. The vertical beam known as the staticulum would have been used many times before and many times after Jesus. It was stuck in the ground and left there intentionally. But Jesus would have been required to carry his own cross beam. This part of the cross known as the patibulum. 
These beams of seasoned wood often weighed in excess of 100 pounds, sometimes in excess of 150 pounds. And it was an exhausting load for even the fittest of people to carry. As we piece together the gospel accounts, it seems to us that Jesus was able to carry this cross beam on his own for a short period of time. He probably reached the gates of the city on his own, in his own strength. And it's here that Mark informs us that Jesus required assistance. Now, although it's not explicitly stated, it can be safely assumed that the scourging that Jesus had received had done so much damage to his muscles and to his ligaments that it was not even physically possible for him to bear the weight of his own cross up that hill. He wasn't doing this in rebellion. He wasn't seeking to stop or slow down the procedure. No, he was just simply unable to lift and bear the weight of that piece of wood. Now, please don't pass by this lightly. These facts highlight for us the humanity of Jesus. He was fully God, yes, but he was fully man. And he felt it. We need to recognize and remember this cross that he bore. He felt it. Being the son of God did not mean that he was in any way exempt from the physical torment being inflicted on him. His strength was gone. So Mark tells us that there was a man named Simon of Cyrene coming in from the countryside. And he was, the word here used, compelled to carry the cross. The Romans had a policy by which they were allowed to require any passerby that was not a Roman citizen to carry a load for them up to a mile. Jesus made note of this when he taught in Matthew chapter 5, verse 41, famous passage from the Sermon on the Mount. He said, And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. So this man, Simon of Cyrene, who was from what we would now call Libya, carried the cross up that hill. This must have made an incredible impact on that man. Because Mark, he writes to his audience, which is probably based in Rome, and he describes Simon as, quote, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And it seems that Mark intended his audience to recognize who those two men were. He expected that his readers would have a familiarity with who they are. Now, it's impossible to know, and I don't want to go down any long rabbit trails here, but it is very possible that this is the same Rufus that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, when he says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Now, Paul is writing to the Romans. He had not been to Rome at this time, and he's writing to them about somebody that he knows personally who must have traveled to Rome. It's very possible this is the very same Rufus. Regardless, Mark does not expect familiarity. He does expect familiarity with these two men. He's writing in such a way that he's saying these men are actively involved in some way with the church. They are either significant members there or they are famous enough in the public culture that they are known. Which I think by implication shows that God, in his kindness, was putting the cross on Simon's own back, literally his shoulders, so that he might see Jesus and his family might be saved. But like I said, no chasing rabbits today. Eventually, this procession reached the top of Golgotha, and the Romans offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, but Jesus refused it. Drinks like these were customarily given to those who were crucified because it was known to create a numbing effect on the body. But Jesus refused. So why is it that Jesus refused? 
Why not drink it and become as numb as possible so that he wouldn't experience the pain of this torture? I think we can safely infer two reasons. First, Jesus was committed to following through with God's plan. And he was unwilling to even allow mild inebriation so that he might do all that God had commanded him to do. Commentator James Edwards explains it well when he says it this way. He says, he, speaking of Jesus, does not rely on a narcotic to render his final act of obedience, but accepts God's will in a fully conscious state. I believe this is a very important thing to recognize, that Jesus was not seeking to lessen or deaden his experience. He was going to the cross seeking to be fully obedient in his own faculties. But secondly, Jesus had promised the disciples during the Last Supper a chapter ago, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is fasting in that way from wine. He is fasting on our behalf. So the road to the cross was now complete. We have been talking about in the book of Mark over and over and over that we are moving rapidly to this place. As I said in the very first sermon ever preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship, this book is described as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. And now we have arrived at the main event. So Mark says simply in verse 24, and they crucified him. Now there's no description offered simply because for the original audience there would be no description needed. Crucifixion had become all too commonplace as a form of execution. But for us, people who are far removed from that culture, from that time, from this kind of torture, please allow me to take a moment to explain. Crucifixion is designed to suffocate a person. It is designed to asphyxiate them very slowly. By stretching out the arms far apart over the person's head, they would have to use their hands and their feet to lift themselves up so they could breathe, so that their lungs could inflate. And as the book of Luke tells us, Jesus had his hands and his feet nailed to that cross, meaning that with every breath, Jesus had to pull against those wounds in his hands and push up against the nail that went through his feet just to breathe. Sometimes, crucifixion would last for days. According to the historian Horace, often birds and other animals would come up and begin eating the people before they had even died. And this is what Jesus, the Son of God, came to do for us. And while we could simply linger here and just consider for the rest of the day the physical torment of the cross, Mark doesn't do that. No, Mark instead moves a different direction. So in order to be faithful to the text, let's examine what Mark does underscore in our second point today, which is this. Jesus was reviled on the cross. Mocking is a cruel way in which we intentionally try to cause other people to feel shame. We attempt to elevate ourselves by pushing others down. And at one point or another, every one of us has been on the receiving end of someone else's taunts or jeers. You've felt it. You felt the discouragement and the shame of someone accusing you or someone mocking you or someone speaking of you in a a way that makes you feel small. 
And you know from experience the deep pain that is brought on by words and imitations and actions that have been hatefully handcrafted for your harm. So let's look now at six specific ways that Jesus was mocked in these verses. First, we see in verse 24 that the Roman soldiers, quote, divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Now, certainly, Jesus knew this was coming. Certainly, he anticipated this. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen through 18 prophesied nearly a hundred years earlier For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. And they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Seems as though this was done at the foot of the cross. It seems as though this was done in the sight of the Savior. And you can almost taste the irony that is going on here. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, what did God do? He killed an animal to cover their shame. Yet when the Son of God, the innocent Messiah, was on the cross, the soldiers stripped him of his clothes, and they gambled to see who would take possession of them so they might bring shame to him. He was stripped of his clothes so that he might take our shame and clothe us in his righteousness. As the old hymn says, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. J.C. Ryle has a beautiful explanation of this in his commentary. He says, this was done so that we who were defiled with sin might have a wedding garment to wear as we sit down by the side of angels and be not ashamed. It was not only the soldiers, though, that sought to shame Jesus. Pilate even commissioned a sign that was placed above Jesus' head that read, The King of the Jews. The book of John informs us that it was printed in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. And John also tells us in John 19, 21 through 22, So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather write, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered them, what I have written, I have written. Surely Pilate knew that this sign would cause many people to mock Jesus. Once again, it should be noted as highly ironic that Pilate viewed this as an insult, but it was actually just the printed truth. This man is the king. Jesus is indeed the king. Now, thirdly, we see that even the geographical location of Jesus' death was intended to be insulting. He is placed right outside the city walls. He is placed on a hill, highly visible. And he is placed between two robbers. Mark says, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Now, we naturally group things together. We naturally generalize. We consider people by association. We have to train our children. One of these things is not like the other. And Jesus, who knew no sin, was outstretched between two of the most wicked people of his day. 700 years earlier, Isaiah had prophesied this would happen when he said in Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. 
because he poured out his soul to death. And notice, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. There are a few things, very few things, that you will protect more ruthlessly than your own reputation. I think you know this to be true. You don't want people to think of you as being guilty of something, of some crime that you haven't committed. Yet Jesus, he was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with sinners, sinners like you and me, so that he might bear our sin and so that he might make intercession for us on our behalf. So if you are in Christ, you are justified by the grace of God and you are no longer counted with the transgressors. You are no no longer numbered with them. Instead, you are now numbered among the righteous, not because of works of your own that you've accomplished. We are the recipients instead of a beautiful but unfair trade. Which brings us to our fourth way that Jesus was mocked. And the hits just keep on coming because there were many more people who mocked Jesus that day. As I mentioned earlier, one of the goals of crucifixion was maximum visibility. So Jesus was crucified on a hill just outside the city wall. And it seems as though the main road went right between where the cross was and the city road to the gate was. That means that every single person that walked into the city that day as they were preparing for the Sabbath would have seen Jesus. Parents were probably shielding the eyes of their small children. They don't want them to see this gruesome, detestable thing. Some who had aversions to blood, like me, probably felt sick to their stomachs as they looked up and they saw the brutality that had gone and been affecting these men, specifically Jesus who had been scourged. Remember though, this is during the most crowded time of the year when many people had traveled to Jerusalem for the purpose of the Passover. Most of those people were not living in Jerusalem, but they had to go into Jerusalem to get the materials they would need for the Passover, for the Sabbath. That means thousands of people would have been traversing the road that day. Literally, probably, more than a 100,000 people would have walked past that cross that day. And this means many had an opportunity to see Jesus. Many of them looked and saw him on that cross. And Mark informs us that many who walked by derided him. It says they were wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. There are several allusions here and some direct prophecies to this exact scorn that was received by the Messiah. For example, in Psalm 22 verse 7, it says, All who see me mock me, and they make mouths at me, and they wag their heads at me. Where Jesus had once been worshipped by choirs of angels, at the cross it was replaced with a chorus of harsh jokes. They looked upon his seemingly helpless state and they showed no pity. Instead, they spewed forth hate and anger in their mockery. Yet when Jesus saw us in our truly helpless state, he showed us pity. And he showed us compassion. He saw us like sheep without a shepherd. He did not mock us, but he came instead to take our place. There's a fifth group here who also arose to mock Jesus. Perhaps even the most notable among them, the chief priests and the scribes. 
Mark 15, 31 through 32 says, So also the chief priests, along with the scribes, mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we might see and believe. Now we'll come back in a moment to the content of what they had to say. But for now, I want to zone in on what uh, the way that their actions show them to be so different from Jesus. Ezekiel explained and foretold that this was coming. In Ezekiel 34, he explains how the leaders of Israel have not sought the good of the people. They haven't sought for them to grow or be nourished. Instead, they have sought only their own personal power and personal gain. Now, this is a long quote, so I've asked Rocky to put it up on the screen for me. But I'm going to read to you the beginning portion. This continues on, and it is incredible. I encourage you to read it. I'm going to read you the beginning portion of Ezekiel 34. And I want you to see in them, in this passage, these chief priests and scribes being spoken about as the shepherds. These are to be the leaders of Israel. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding on the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Who's doing this? I, I will do this. I will rescue them. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. When is he doing this? What, what moment, what day is he foretelling? He is foretelling this moment at the cross. It is for this reason that Jesus says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. My favorite uh, verse in the book of Luke, Luke nineteen ten. for the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. Is that what these chief priests are doing? 
Is that what these scribes were here to do? No, they were there to create their own power structure through the political system. And now they are sitting, standing there at the base of the cross thinking that they are in control, thinking they've gained what they were searching for. They were terrified that anyone else other than them would ever call the shots. And now as they are mocking Jesus, they are telling him, just come down to the down, just come down from the cross and then we'll believe. Come down and we'll believe. Sixthly, we'll move on quickly. There's one final group that is listed that mocked Jesus. Mark gives us very limited information here. He simply says, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. We know from the other gospel accounts that there was a great deal that transpired between Jesus and these two thieves. In fact, all three of the other gospel accounts tell us that one of those thieves eventually repented and placed his faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus promised that thief that he would see paradise that very day. So I want to say to anyone here who doesn't know Christ, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, if you've walked into this place as somebody who mocks God, as somebody who hates God, or someone who rejects the idea of God's rule over your life, please know that I'm praying for you. I'm praying that God would do what he did in the heart of that thief, that he would change your heart to believe so that you might see the glories of Calvary. And I am confident that if you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ today, you will be saved. Now this brings us to our third and our final point today, which is that Jesus remained on the cross. Earlier this week, I saw a video, somebody posted on Facebook, of a pastor from Philadelphia who set up a like a, like a three-and-a-half-foot statue of Mary. And he proceeded to explain that this statue met all of the criteria of what the Old Testament condemned as idolatry. Then he taunted the statue, saying, you know, the Old Testament says that they have mouths, but they cannot speak. Can you speak to me? That they have ears, but they cannot hear. He's talking to it, praying to it, pretending she cannot hear. And eventually, he smashed the statue with a hammer. Now, although he went about this in a way that is very different than I would do, I actually agree with the theology that he's speaking about here in the sense that Mary is often worshipped as an idol, but she can't hear you. She can't forgive you. She can't save you. And the idea that she could do any of those things, the idea that she can even hear your prayers, is not only absurd, but is deeply, deeply sinful and idolatrous. In the Old Testament, when Israel had begun worshipping the false god Baal, Elijah set up this contest to see which god would answer with fire from heaven you remember this story and while the chief priests of baal danced around and they cut themselves elijah mocked them he mocked their god saying cry aloud for he is a god either he's musing or maybe he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be wakened he's mocking the fact that this is no god at all this god cannot hear you This God cannot respond to you. This God cannot save you. Now in a very twisted and sickening way, the chief priest and the scribe said to one another, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we might see and believe. The thing is, they were almost correct in what they had to say. They were almost right. It wasn't that he couldn't come down. It's that he wouldn't. It was not inability, but commitment that kept Jesus on the cross. They were wrong when they said that he could not save himself. Consider the words of the Savior from Mark, I'm sorry, from John chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus said, 
No one takes my life from me. No one takes my life from me. No one, not Pilate, not the Roman soldiers, not the chief priests, this cross itself, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. At any moment, he could have called down a multitude of angels, and he could have been aided by them. No, no, he, he was able to save himself. It was within his power, but it was not within his plan. Jesus had told Nicodemus back in John chapter 3, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. That whoever believes in him might have eternal life, predicated is that if he does not get lifted up, if he does not remain on the cross, then there is no eternal life. There is no hope. The taunts of the chief priests said that they would believe Jesus if he would just come down. But that is precisely the reason he stayed up. For the sake of our salvation, Jesus remained suspended between heaven and earth so that we might see him there and believe. They were completely wrong, but their statement would have been correct if they would have said he saved others by not saving himself. It was one or the other, and he chose us. This should bring you and I to joy. This should bring us awe as we see the love of Jesus on full display. And if you're able to sit there unmoved, if you were able to hear what I'm saying unmoved, I know that it's time change Sunday. Everybody seems jet lagged. If you're able to hear this and be unmoved, then I want to pause and do something I've never done before. I want to stop right in the middle of my sermon. I want to pray for you before we transition into our time of application. God, I know that I am not the most effective communicator of your truth, but I also know that you are able to overcome any of my shortcomings. God, I pray that your word would break every hard heart right now. I ask that as we move into our time of application, that you would breathe life into the lethargic, that you would break the hearts of the proud, that you would give us grace to put your word into action. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So now that we have come to this place, to seeing Jesus on the cross, what are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do with that? What feet can we put to this knowledge? Allow me to close with just three very simple practical applications. First of all, to those who are not believers, I say to you, look and live. Jesus said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Moses was told to do that so that sinners who angered God, those sinners who had been bitten by the deadly snakes, could look up to the bronze serpent on the pole and they would live. Look and live. See it and live. And I am telling you today that if you don't know Jesus, look at this man on the cross. Look and live. Know that he was perfect and did not deserve to die there. Look to him and see that he bore the sins of sinners like you and I on the cross. No one gets to heaven because they deserve it. And the only way that you will be in heaven is if you see this man and you look and live. He did not remain dead. No, three days later he rose again and he is still alive to be your savior. If you call on his name, he will save you. Second application for the day. 
Do not stand with the scoffers. In the wonderful hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, one line says, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, you know the words, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. If you've been saved by God's grace, then you know that you used to be one of those scoffers. But I want to point out that when we sin without thought, without even putting up a fight, what we are doing is making a mockery of the grace of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Are we to continue on in sin so that grace may abound? <clears throat> you know what he says next. By no means. Exclamation point. By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? When we go on living like the world, when we go on living unchanged, when we are not seeking to live in the sight of God, it's as though we are jumping back into that crowd of mockers. So if you are living in open sin, if you are living a life filled with secret sin, I plead with you today, confess and repent. Don't set yourself with them. Do not step outside of where you have been brought to. Stand in the light of the cross. Consider the words of James 4, 4 through 10. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I know that's a lot to say. But let's mourn over our sin. If you are continuing on in sin, not facing it at all, I call you today to fight that sin, to battle that sin, to repent of that sin. It will never become easier to turn away from it than it is today. It will never become more comfortable to fight it. Please don't skip over these five most important words here, though. But he gives more grace. Come to God humbly. For we know that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them. So if we have been saved by such a great love, if we have been saved, if you are here and you have been saved, let's not drag the name of our Savior through the mud. Let's not make a mockery of him to the world. Let's live for him and like him. But by the grace and by his power, let's seek to be a church that honors Jesus, publicly and privately. And in our final application point to the day, we look to what some theologians call the divine paradox. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 35, For whomever would seek to save his life will lose it. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, in a beautiful way, we see Jesus living this out and displaying it in his own death. He has not asked you to do anything that he has not already done. So let me close this chapter with a final question for you. For whom are you living? 
Are you living for Christ? Or is your daily life set on living for yourself? When you wake up, if you're anything like me, your natural propensity is to have yourself at the center of the universe and to think all about your own needs and desires. Do you set your heart to living daily for Jesus Christ? Now, we could offer a lot of hypothetical scenarios all day asking if, if you were given the opportunity to deny Christ or be executed, what would you say? But the Bible most often speaks about daily living for Jesus. It speaks about that much more than it speaks about dying for him. And it does so by speaking about not seeking to save your own life, not seeking to chase after the same thing the world chases after. We now have kingdom priorities. We now have heavenly objectives. So I hope today you will examine your heart before the Lord and determine to live every moment at the foot of the cross. Surrendering every passion, every goal, every desire, every hope, every ambition to him. Moms and dads, being a parent is hard. Kids are challenging. But God gave them to you and he will give you grace to teach them and train them and lead them. Trust in him and live for him. Many of you here have jobs where you work with people who hate God who fight against the things of God, who hate that you believe in Jesus Christ. But God has placed you there for a specific reason. Live your life for him and in light of him. If you're seeking to gain your own reputation, you're going to ignore Christ constantly. And you're going to ignore opportunities to proclaim his glories. Live for Christ in your job. There are many other applications. Every single minute of every day is one of those opportunities where you can stand at the foot of the cross living in light of what Jesus has done for you. So I challenge you, examine your heart, examine your life, and determine whether or not you are surrendering surrendering yourself to him or whether or not you are living for yourself. And I call you to live a sold-out life completely to Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you have given me the opportunity to proclaim your word today. Lord, I recognize that I am unworthy to do so. Lord, I pray that you would help me to stand in light of the cross every day. I pray that you would help each and every one of us here to live in light of the gospel, that we would be changed moment by moment, that you would give grace upon grace, that we would be more and more like Jesus as we seek your kingdom come. And God, I pray specifically for anyone here who does not know you in a saving way. Anyone here that has a a mind filled with information but has not had their heart changed, God, I pray that by your grace you would save them. And Lord, today as we close out our service and as we move soon to a time of fellowship, I pray that our time together would be filled with joy, that you would help us to speak life to one another, that you would help us to build one another up and encourage one another and speak about meaningful things with one another. God, I pray that you would be glorified in all that we say and do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.